Hello and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and I'm fighting through something my wife gave me, but we're going to power through this together, you and I. Maybe you shouldn't listen through headphones. I don't want you to get an ear infection. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course, the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Oh, I have got some cool trivia for you this week. Now, we all know that several artists are known for long concerts. Uh, Bruce Springsteen once went for four hours and six minutes. The Cure went for four hours and 16 minutes. And nobody timed the Pixies tribute concert to the Chilean miners, but they did 33 songs. That would be one for each miner. So that's got to be in the four-hour ballpark. Musician uh, Chili Gonzalez once played for 27 hours and three minutes straight, specifically to set a world record for the longest solo performance. But there is a performance that beats all of them by far. Who is the artist? What's the piece? I'll have that answer and the story behind it near the end of the show. A Whiter Shade of Pale, the debut single by Procol Harum, was, is often considered one of the songs that helped define that summer of love in 1967 and at the same time evoked a more classical sound than the peace and love or the psychedelic sounds of that era. And I think part of the initial appeal of the song is exactly that. It sounded very different from so much other of the stuff that was popular at that time. Other songs on the charts around then included The Hollies with both Carrie Ann and On a Carousel. The Strawberry Alarm Clock hit us with the psychedelic bubblegum of Incense and Peppermints. The association was pretty hot with Never My Love. Scott McKenzie was giving us sartorial advice should we choose to visit San Francisco. Really, the only thing that came anywhere close to, to Whiter Shade of Pale would maybe... Vanilla Fudge's cover of You Keep Me Hanging On. And if that sounds like a long list, I want you to know I cut it down because there was just so much different stuff going on at that time. But I think we can both tell that the summer of 1967 was also the time that pop music really started to evolve in terms of the sophistication levels of both the music and the lyrical content. And Procol Harum was as a band, was pretty emblematic of that, giving us this blend of, of, of Baroque sounds combined with a kind of a blue-eyed soul. All right, let's back up just a little bit with the band, largely because, well, a little bit is all there is to back up. The band started out as the Paramounts, and they were based out of Southend-on-Sea in Essex, England. They had a minor hit there in 1964 with this cover of the coasters, Poison Ivy. Unfortunately for them, there weren't any other hits for the Paramounts, so they broke up in 1966. But in 1967, founding member Gary Brooker put together another band with Matthew Fisher on the Hammond organ, guitar player Ray Royer, uh, bass player David Knights and Keith Reed, who couldn't sing or play, but he wrote poetry, and that's where most of their songs came from. The band got its name from their manager, who took the name of their producer's Burmese cat, whose cat fancy name was indeed Procol Harun, H-A-R-U-N. 
Procol was the breeder's prefix. Now, many people have said that the phrase translates as a Latin phrase, meaning beyond these things, but frankly, that's just nonsense. Procol is a Latin word which has a few meanings, and beyond is within the realm of such a translation. But Harun is an Arabic name similar to the Hebrew Aaron. The nearest translation comes out to warrior lion. So Procol Haram with an M doesn't mean much really of anything. Sorry. Anyway, the only reason I'm even mentioning the Paramount is because after Whiter Shade of Pale was released and became a hit, some of them came back to Procol Harum, specifically drummer B.J. Wilson and guitarist Robin Trower, when the players they replaced left the group to form a band called Freedom. Got all that? The band recorded the album with one lineup, then toured and recorded their follow-up single with another, and after 1968, there were many, many lineup changes before the band finally broke up in 1977. They did get back together in 1991, and they played now and then, but that's the heart of the band there. But let's go back to 1967, shall we? According to the book Procol Harum Beyond the Pale, Keith Reed first got the idea for the song when he was at a party, and he overheard someone saying to a woman there, you've turned a whiter shade of pale. In an interview with Uncut Magazine, Reed said that he was attempting to create a mood with the song, more evocative than descriptive. I mean, yes, the song is about a girl leaving a boy, but Reed is clearly reaching for some metaphors here, and he has long denied that the song was influenced by drugs. And frankly, given that he echoes the Canterbury Tales in the chorus with the line about the Miller's Tale, I'm kind of buying that explanation. But Reed has also said that he never actually read the Miller's Tale. It just sounded good, so mm, go figure. Now, oddly enough, while we didn't read all of the Canterbury Tales in high school, the Miller's Tale is the only one of them that I remember. The oversimplified version of it is the story of a carpenter whose much younger wife is pressured into having an affair with someone. Meanwhile, another young man is also interested in her, but since she's already involved with the first guy, she's resistant. Eventually, he talks her into letting him kiss her through the privy vent, and because it's dark and he can't see, she sticks her butt through this window, and he kisses that instead. Now, the second guy is angry because he kissed somebody's butt, so he goes to the local blacksmith, and he gets a red-hot coulter intending to burn her with it. He knocks on the window a second time, but by now the first man with whom she's having the affair actually needs to use the privy. So to get on the in on the joke, he's the one who sticks his buttocks out the window and he gets burned instead. All of this ruckus leads to the carpenter learning about the affair, but when he tells the story, all of the townspeople laugh at him and they think he's crazy. As I've said, that's vastly oversimplified, but it's truly a fun body story, and you can find modern English versions of it for free in the Amazon Kindle store so you don't have to wade through the middle English like I did. For what it's worth, Reed originally wrote a much longer song with four verses because long tracks like Hey Jude or Like a Rolling Stone were kind of in vogue at that point, but pretty early on they decided to drop them. However, they did occasionally play three and sometimes all four of those verses in concert. So anyway, the band put together maybe a dozen songs for the first album, but Whiter Shade of Pale was one of their stronger contenders, and it was one of the first tracks they cut for the album. Some sources say it was the first track they cut. Reed once said in an interview that he liked that one and another track called Salad Days Are Here Again as the first single, but Whiter Shade was the one that recorded the best. 
Reed noted that in those days, it wasn't just how good the song was, it was how good you could make it sound. Remember, in 1967, multi-track recording was still pretty much in its infancy, so bands were still basically recording the whole thing live. So if you had a bad engineer or wonky audio quality in the studio, the recording wasn't going to sound good. And fortunately, Reed said, their first session came out sounding pretty good. Now, Gary Brooker said in the same Uncut Magazine interview that he'd been listening to a lot of classical music and jazz around the same time the song was written. And when he saw the lyrics that Reed had written, he decided that he wanted to give it a specific atmosphere with the music. He'd been working with something earlier that incorporated a bit of classical music and it all fell together. So if you listen to the chords, it sounds a little bit like this piece, Johann Sebastian Bach's Air on a G-String, but it kind of departs from there. Now what Brooker doesn't mention is that the Bach was probably on his mind because of a jazz version of the piece that was being in the, used in the UK for some very humorous and popular cigar ads. Now, some people have also compared the chords to uh, Percy Sledge's When a Man Loves a Woman, and I, I can kind of hear that too. But while the chord structure was a game changer, I don't think anyone can deny that it was also Matthew Fisher's Hammond organ that really pulls you in. In fact, even though the song is four minutes and three seconds long, it only has two verses and the chorus twice. As I mentioned earlier, the song started out much longer. There's a lot of instrumentation in there now, and Fisher's sound specifically gives the song its signature atmosphere, enough that Fisher eventually sued for a partial writing credit in 2005. Now, in December of 2006, he won the case, and he was given a 40% share of the music copyright but he wasn't granted any back royalties. The case was appealed and the Court of Appeal upheld the co-authorship, but said he should get no royalties at all because he had taken so long to get around to suing. Now that wasn't quite true. He had attempted to sue a few times earlier, but the lawyers kept telling him he didn't really have a strong claim. As a result of that appeal though, full royalties came back to Brooker. In 2009, that decision was appealed, which in England means it goes to the House of Lords. And in fact, it goes to a specific group called the Law Lords. They ruled unanimously in Fisher's favor. So at this point, Matthew Fisher is receiving a 40% share of music royalties from 2005 onward. Meanwhile, back in 1967, producer Danny Cordell was a little bit worried about the sound of the record overall, specifically the fact that the session drummer they used was just maybe a little too prominent when it came to his cymbals. So, he sent an acetate copy of the song to Radio London, which played the record on the air 
and announced that the song sounded like a massive hit. And it did perform respectfully. The single was released the second week of May in the UK, and within a couple of weeks it reached number one, where it held the position for six weeks. In the United States, it peaked at number five on the Billboard Hot 100 and sold over a million copies. It also made it to number 22 on the soul charts in the U.S. The song was on the U.S. release of the band's debut album, but for some reason it wasn't on the U.K. version. It was also a number one song in most of Europe, in Australia and New Zealand, and in South Africa. Now, the band made two promotional films for the song. The first one features four of the five band members who played on the record. They had a permanent drummer by then, so the session drummer wasn't in the film performing the song and walking around the ruins of Whitley Court, which is a mansion that had been destroyed by fire in the 1930s. This was interspersed with newsreel footage from the Vietnam War, and because of the war footage, the BBC refused to air the film on the top of the Pops TV show. So, they made a second promotional clip using Scopitone technology. Now again, I'm oversimplifying, but Scopitone was a kind of video jukebox that used 16mm film and a magnetic soundtrack. Scopitone and similar technologies are probably the reason many bands at that time made promotional films at all. This version has only three of the five original musicians in it, since by now Robin Trower and BJ Wilson are in the band. And in this version, we see shots of the band walking around London, standing in fields and such, with Brooker miming the lyrics and the entire band just kind of staring at the camera without any real expression. And in fact, Brooker doesn't have a lot of expression on his face. It's, it's really kind of interesting and, and, and a, little, a little disorienting, actually. So there are a bunch of covers of the song out there, but probably the most notable would be this one by Annie Lennox in 1995 from her album Medusa. It became the second single off that album, and it was a top 40 hit in several European nations, but it missed the Hot 100 in the U.S. by a hair, although it did appear in the top 10 on the dance singles chart. One thing I do like better about Annie Lennox's version is the ending. She gives the song a full ending rather than that weird quick fade out that Porco Harum does as they go into the chorus for a third time. I gotta admit, I never liked Porco Harum's ending to the song. And now it is time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you about the musician whose concert lasted far longer than anyone else's. Well, that story goes back to 1987 when composer John Cage wrote a piece of music that he titled As Slow As Possible. And I should note that there's some unusual spelling here because the L in slow and the S in as are capitalized, which means when it's initialized, it's not ASAP, but rather ASLSP. As Slow As Possible was written for the piano or the organ, and it was designed to be played, surprise, very, very slowly. Now, a typical performance will run anywhere between 20 and 70 minutes. However, in 2009, the piece was played on an organ at uh, Towson University, which is just a couple of miles from where I'm sitting right now, and it clocked in at 14 hours and 56 minutes. 
In 2012, a performance took place in Australia that was designed to take eight hours. A cathedral in Montreal, Quebec, uh, Canada, did a 12-hour performance by three different organists. And on June 22, 2019, a 12-hour performance was done in Christchurch, New Zealand to celebrate the Southern Hemisphere winter solstice. But the real winner in this case is the organ version at the St. Perchardi Church, which is located in Halberstadt, Germany. Now, the reason they chose to do this in the first place was to commemorate the first documented permanent installation of an organ, which took place in 1361 in the Halberstadt Cathedral. Now, when they first proposed this concert in 1997, they planned to launch the concert in the year 2000, 639 years after that installation date. Unfortunately, the organ's construction was delayed, so they couldn't play until a year later in 2001. And if you haven't guessed yet, the performance is scheduled to go on for 639 years, which means that months or even years can go on between each segment or what's called an impulse of the piece. In order to sustain notes, they've arranged for these tiny sandbags to be arranged on the pedals. And in fact, the organ itself wasn't completely installed by the time they began. They've been working on it since the performance started. There are actually a few videos on YouTube that you can check out if you search as slow as possible. I'm not including any audio from the church because anything I could find comes from YouTube. So what you get is a low drone with a lot of room noise and the sound of people walking around. However, if you want to go see it for yourself, you'd better hurry because you've only got to until the year 2640. <laughs> And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. And thank goodness, because I think my voice is just about to give out. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. Or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when we talk about the power ballad that may have damaged Foreigner's reputation. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. Next time.